This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day four. Good morning, good evening, <laughs> depending on where everyone is at. Um, I'm just, again, thank you, Steve, for the invitation. I'm really happy to be able to uh, be in conversation and I'm just enjoying the melodious Australian accent. I hadn't realized how much I've missed it. <laughs> <laughs> we are very fortunate to have you. Thank you. Okay, so I will share my screen just so that we can begin. There we go. Um, so I would first begin by acknowledging the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and Huron-Wendat, who they are original owners and custodians of the lands in which I live and create here in uh, Toronto, uh, otherwise known as Tokoronto from its non-colonial name. Um, Again, I'm at OCAD University. So OCAD is the oldest and largest art design institution in uh, Canada. It is the uh, third largest art and design institution uh, in North America. And so I share this with you because it's really important to understand the context of some of the work that we've been doing at OCAD University to decolonize design and to have a sense of what impact that's going to have. So in just the faculty design, I have over 2,600 students, uh, about 80 or so full-time faculty and over 250 part-time faculty. And so again, just to give you a little bit of a context. Um, as indicated, as the Dean of Design at OCAD University, I am actually the first black and black female Dean of a faculty design anywhere in the world. Um, and that says a lot around the, the kind of work of decolonizing design that needs to be done. Uh, again, as Steve indicated, I'm a design anthropologist. I'm African-American. And all this means that I come to design in a different way. Um, so I'm gonna to talk to you about decolonizing design and sort of six steps that one can take. So it'll be very practical, but first, I need to kind of contextualize. So the ethos at OCAD University is respectful design. And actually the notion of respectful design comes out of the Australian context. So this is me and Dr. Norm Sheehan and Dr. Judy Barron and uh, Francis uh, Farmer, all kind of talking about the ways in which design has been disrespectful from various perspectives, disrespectful to the, to the environment, disrespectful to women, disrespectful to indigenous communities, disrespectful to racialized community. And what is it that we can do to bring respect to a practice that has so much impact on everyone's um, everyday lives? Again, I'm a design anthropologist by background. So what I look at is what are the relationship between the values people have, design and then the experiences that people actually have and the experiences that people would like to have. And so what has been important in my journey is understanding the way in which design has been disrespectful to, to what we call here a BIPOC community, so Black, Indigenous, and POC communities, as well as the land, and trying to figure out a way in which we can make amends for that. And the experience of sort of a colonial version of design has real implications. So my BIPOC students often feel like they have to choose between their beautiful and diverse identities and being a professional designer because the values of design have been and still are, even though we're working on it, colonial, white supremacist, patriarchal and capitalist all of these kinds of processes that have been quite harmful to, um, to the communities of the diverse students that I engage with. So I wanna take you a little bit of journey of just understanding a little bit about design's harm and what we can do about it. So first I have to explain a couple of concepts. Uh, the first one is the settler colonial state. So uh, Australia is a settler colonial state, but I'm gonna talk about North America first. Um, and this comes out of this, the ideal in the settler colonial state that there are three kinds of positionalities that are established. There's like a settler, there's the indigenous people who are the original people. Um, there are settlers who've come to the land 
um, in order to sort of take over. And then there are um, enslaved people, so slave positionalities, which have been brought in many ways as excess labor to the land to work the land. So when we think about the colonial um, settler colonial state, the land by nature has been stolen and pillaged. And, and part of colonization is setting up a set of rules and policies. And in these cases, it's rules of policies of assimilation, which have been genocidal to those who are non-European. So in the context of North America, um, where again, I've spent most of my life, um, this has impact on the way in which design is approached. So, Again, the um, indigenous people are the original custodians of the land, and they've actively fought against assimilationist policies. In the case of North America, it's like 500, 600 years of fighting against assimilationist policies. And this expresses itself through the design because a lot of the issues we have around appropriation and misappropriation of indigenous designs as indigenous motifs are directly related to this ideal that somehow there are no indigenous people. That the process, the genocidal process was so successful that as a design label, so in this case, like the British fashion label K2Z, that you don't have to go into a community consultation negotiation with living indigenous peoples, their families and communities um, to in many ways understand what is the proper use or not proper use or collaborate together on the use of indigenous motifs. So it is that sense of entitlement and that assumption that the genocidal project was successful that underlines all of these issues we have every week, it seems, of some fashion label um, appropriating and misappropriating indigenous design. And when we speak about it, like when I speak about it to indigenous colleagues or indigenous guests, the, the, the deep harm that is done has to do with the fact that they've lost so much in many cases through the colonial process. They've lost language that has to have been rebuilt. They've lost family connections that have to be rebuilt. They've lost designs. And so some of these motifs might be the only remaining traces of their connection. And then you have a British company in this case um, wanting to take that as well. And the egregiousness of the things that are also taken are that they're related to the sacred. So the use and the misuse of these motifs actually have an effect cosmologically on the universe, um, setting up the universe for a potential disaster. So in the context of like by design in many ways, our relationship to the settler colonial state and the relationship that they've set up around indigenous people finds itself um, manifested in the way in which design approaches indigenous people and that relationship can be harmful. Um, in the context of enslaved populations that have been brought, so black populations brought um, from Africa, um, enslaved to work in North America, again, their relationship to the land is that they're brought involuntarily. And from an assimilation perspective, they're unassimilatable. And I always talk about like, my name is Elizabeth Tunstall, which is the English name, and English is my first language. And all of the ways through the process of colonization that African um, peoples have been stripped of their language, of their culture, of their practices, forbidden by law at the point of death, that even the, the taking on of so many European practices um, Christian religion, all these sort of things that they're still unassimilatable by the settler colonial state. Why? Because the very nature of the settler colonial state is based on a sense of white supremacy. And um, uh, Jacqueline Battaloria, who's a historian, gives it a time and date. So like 1681 in Maryland, uh, Virginia, this was the first time that you see this this notion of white supremacy put into law like everyone was european british dutch before that but in 1681 through legal documentations and anti-miscegenation laws white supremacy became the law of the land in north america and then spread to other places 
And again, this sets up harmful relationships that design is part of. Like one of the examples I always talk about is the development of the cotton gin. Uh, so the cotton gin <laughs> was uh, created basically by um, a Yale graduate <laughs> uh, who, again, saw some inefficiency that was happening on a plantation. Uh, and the inefficiency was in the area at which he was working. Uh, that the cotton was short cotton, short hair cotton, so it was difficult for it to be picked. Um, so this is um, Whitney, who's sort of established this. Uh, the, actually, the first one of the first patents was for the cotton gin by Eli Whitney. And what happened when he created this efficiency tool, right, was that the in in uh, 1790, there was only about um, 300, 400,000 enslaved Africans. And actually, in some ways, slavery was declining. By 1850, the end of slavery, that number had increased to almost 3 million. And this is by design because the efficiency that was gained by the use of the cotton gin was then re uh, more land was, was required, so again, taking from the indigenous populations, more labor was required to grow more cotton. And at this particular point in time, cotton then was sent to England, so this is driving the textile mills in England. Uh, this is building the wealth in the north of the United States. So cotton was like, like three-fourths of all exports uh, coming out of the United States was cotton um, produced by enslaved people. and. This was by design, that in the design, Eli Whitney was like, we're going to make so much money from this because it was able to take slave labor that took an entire day to remove the fiber, now took one hour. And so you could produce more cotton, produce more land, produce more textiles, and basically underwrite the Industrial Revolution in which we define industrial design coming out of. And then there's the, those who are called people of color that we refer to. So this is Asian, uh, Latinx, <laughs> uh, Middle Eastern. So those who are sort of non-Black, non-Indigenous, non-European, uh, white of European heritage. And their relationship to the land is often they've had to escape their homes and become new settlers to the land. And in terms of assimilationist policies, they, depending on their their skin color, depending on their uh, education level, have a little bit of privilege to make difficult and painful choices about how they're going to assimilate or not to assimilate um, into mainstream sort of society. But again, in this process, they always encounter discrimination. They always encounter racism. So the ad that I'm showing is from uh, 1886. And again, this is just selling washing power, but it's selling washing power that actually is supporting the Chinese Exclusion Act, which in the United States was passed in 1884 and then later was passed in, um, in Canada. Um, again, sort of uh, showing discriminatory and racist uh, ideology in relationship to, um, in this case, Chinese um, immigrants. And again, this is all by design. So in a context where I'm trying to teach design, I have to understand the way in which my different students will encounter the history of design, encounter the current practices of design. And again, it operates differently. So in Australia, which is also a settler colonial state, so again, in the same way, the land is stolen and pillaged. There's assimilationist policies that are genocidal against non-Europeans. Uh, things are different, like the experience was different. So um, Aboriginal nations spoke over 200 and 300 languages for 65,000 years until the British arrived in 1770 with Captain Cook claiming the land. And here's a context in which like indigenous and black is, is, is brought together because in the context of Australia, you have 
um, all of the aspects of sort of indigenous uh, land taking exploitation, but you also had practices such as blackbirding where indigenous populations were still kidnapped, uh, either forced to work on ships um, or brought to like Queensland to work on sugar plantations. And so you have both within the sort of the indigenous populations, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations, elements that of enslavement as well as elements of sort of uh, genocidal um, genocidal practices. And, and the way in which, again, this expresses itself in design is the way in which um, the same practices of appropriation and misappropriation, the same practices of cultural revitalization that indigenous designers have to go through in order to recover language, in order to recover mo motifs that have been forbidden to be practiced in some cases for over 100 years. So like when I'm living in Melbourne, this is the time of like great revitalization of like the, uh, the creation of, 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 of the, um, the creation of the uh, uh, possum skin cloaks and the meticulous process of rebuilding that culture. Um, but again, also in a context in which there's great xenophobia. So the new blacks, <laughs> in the sense of being African uh, uh, peoples who've come for economic and or political refugee status, uh, other people of color, particularly in the context of, of Australia, the sort of xenophobia against uh, sort of Asians, uh, which again is flaring up um, in the context of COVID-19, that they've also had to escape home to become new settlers and then engage in these sort of practices of choosing to assimilate as well. But again, experiences dis discrimination and experience the denigration of many ways of like their culture and their cultural designs. So, to understand what decolonization is about is that it is always about indigenous land sovereignty. And the work that we sort of do at OCAD is that the work of design in that is in many ways liberating design from what we call the modernist design project. And this is kind of two myths that design has sort of uh, propagated around the world. The first myth is that through technology, we can bring luxury to the masses. So this is the sense of technological progress. And through this notion of universal uh, mankind, so if you drop your national and ethnic baggage, in other words, get rid of your serifs, <laughs> then, and then you can join together um, in peace and harmony. And this is a myth for a couple of reasons. Again, in the context of Europe, and we always sort of aspire to the way with discussions of the Bauhaus that this is actually meant to be utopian. And in a context of Europe, which has thousands of years of conflict, uh, thousands of years of class struggle, that this myth of the modernist design project is very attractive and very, again, utopian. But in the context of the, of the settler colonial state, the modernist design project is colonization 2.0 where that progress and technological uh, possibilities do not serve everyone, but only serve a very specific European elite. And again, it's through the, uh, the taking of indigenous lands. It is through the uh, extraction of excess labor. Uh, that is how you gain the cheapness that allows others to sort of buy things that only used to be able to buy um, the aristocracy were the only ones to be able to afford. And again, this notion of like universal humankind, drop your ethnic baggage becomes the context and colonization of uh, cultural genocide. So now that I've adequately like depressed you in terms of what is the history of design and how Again, racism, white supremacy, all of these and colonization has built into design that there's a lot of work that's going on, not just at OCAD University, but other institutions that are beginning to make amends 
Um, and so I'm going to just talk about those practical things that we've been doing at OCAD University to drive diversity, equity, and the decolonization of design. Um, so the first thing that we're doing is putting indigenous demands first. Um, so I just we just wrapped up uh, and have uh, starting this in a couple of weeks, uh, our second indigenous cluster hire. This is a note from our first indigenous cluster hire. Um, but what we've been doing is building critical mass in terms of our indigenous faculty so that they have the opportunity to help us guide this process of decolonization. We've done community engagement to understand what decolonization means. And there's some really beautiful work that's happening. Like, so, you know, there's the picture of the buffalo here and respect. This is coming out of the seven, um, the grandfather's seven, the seven grandfathers teaching. And so one of my faculty members, Howard Monroe, is adapting the, se the seven grandfathers teachings to the design process so that our analyze and research process is now actually the respect process. That indigenous ways of knowing and being is actually driving our understanding of what it means to design and to be a designer. Uh, we're owning up to the institution's racism and white supremacy. Um, so we underwent uh, a few years ago in 2016, a presidential task force on underrepresentation. Um, and this uh, was the institution understanding the way in which it is responsible for the underrepresentation of indigenous as well as racialized employees. And what are some clear steps that can be done in order to address it? And a lot of it is actually having really difficult conversations. One of the things I organized was a whiteness without white supremacy uh, set of panel discussions to, because again, at that time, 85% of my faculty were white. So what is the role of whiteness and what is the role of white, um, my white faculty in this transformational process? And so the role that we talked about was, again, changing our cultural values. So understand that we don't have to align ourselves with white supremacy cultural values around either or thinking or especially power hoarding. <laughs> But there are other ways for us to be around transparency instead of paternalism, around multiple ways of sharing instead of just the focus on the written work. And so doing the work to understand internally the kinds of different values we need to have as an organization and then bringing in our policies a different understanding of the kind of diversity of perspectives that we need, the kind of structures that we need was, is really important of the key work that needs to be done in order to decolonize design. The third thing we did is establish authentic relationship to black indigenous and POC communities. So this is pre-COVID, although probably if I was taking the same screenshot today, it would be me in lots of Zoom windows. Um, but this is about being present and being present in community in ways that are not uh, superficial but in ways that show that you are actually part of the community and not at the individual level, but at the level of the institution. So if you're a design firm, it's like, what is your firm doing to build relationships with indigenous communities? What is your, uh, what is your um, relationship to uh, uh, POC communities? And how are you being present in terms of building true consultation um, and what are you doing to build true partnership in such a way that they feel entitled to your resources? So like my key performance indicator is the way in which members of the black community who, when I started five years ago, felt in some ways very disconnected and ignored as institutionally from OCAD University to the fact that now that we're opening up just a little bit, they're all calling to say, uh, can I use the Great Hall for this event that we want to do? And do we not have to pay for security? And do we not have to pay for this? Because they feel that this institution, OCAD University, is part of communal property, right? That is part of who they are. And they thus feel entitled to its resources as they would for anything that anything else in the community. And that's really important in terms of building an authentic relationship. And then we're changing the way in which we make our, we call out to community. So as I said, we've had a black cluster hire, we've done two indigenous cluster hires, and the success of those hiring has been a, 
about three major things that we've done in the way in which we've called to candidates. Well, first of all, we, we call out to candidates directly in terms of like, what is their lived experience? And then what is their relationship to a community? And then in terms of what we need, we define what we need in terms of things that are important to the community. So for the Black Cluster Hire, it's like Black speculative futures is important to the community. Multi-sensory storytelling around Black representations is important to the community. Hip-hop and other Black cultural aesthetics is important to the community. So we didn't ask for an interaction designer. We asked for people who could bring their lived experiences and their community commitments into their work and sharing that work of things that they're interested in with our wider community. And again, we've done a very similar process in our language for our indigenous cluster hire and what's important to them is different, visual sovereignty and self-representation, indigenous futurisms. We don't talk about sustainability, we talk about water and land protection. And then sort of relational, uh, radical relationality. So again, how do you bring forth uh, an, a different engagement with ancestral technologies and materiality? And then the most important thing that we've done is we've actually changed our, our qualification standards to take into account systemic exclusion. Um, so what we found is that even in our normal position description of what it is that we want, that there's a bias. There's a bias that we had with a traditional academic, which already assumed that someone was fully embedded in post-secondary institutions. So they already had to have a master's degree. They already had to have taught one or two years in post-secondary. They already had to be producing things that only are relevant to post-secondary sectors, like conference presentations and journal and book publications. Um, and, and those are things that, again, many communities uh, have been systemically excluded from. So if what we wanted to, to be truly inclusive, we had to broaden our notions of the persona who we're trying to embrace, right? So we thought of the Praxis Star, who, again, may have had only limited access or have been completely excluded from post-secondary. So they wouldn't have a master's degree, but they may have had years of experience working. They may or may not have like uh, taught in post-secondary, but then maybe they're giving design or media workshops or they're uh, giving talks to audiences, things that demonstrate your ability to transmit knowledge from one generation or one group to another group, which is what teaching is about. And maybe, or they may be a community connector who again, may or may not have done uh, small grants and conference presentations and journal book publications, but maybe they've done small projects or held community workshops to share results, or they've self-published reports or testimonials of their good work. Things that we are just trying to understand that shows that they can disseminate the knowledge that they gain to a wider audience. And so we've been hiring for critical mass. And I always talk about hiring in threes for critical mass. So this is like uh, in June 2020, the outcomes of our indigenous cluster, our black cluster hire, where we doubled the number of black faculty at OCAD University in one year. And what's important about this image is that all of the elements of success are there. So you have in the middle of the image, Lillian Allian, Andrea Fotona, who again have been centered for almost over 20 years in terms of trying to push the organization to increase their diversity and inclusion. You've had multiple generations of students who are at the sort of entry level of sort of post-secondary, um, advocating for more faculty who represents who they are. And then I come in in 2016 and I'm at the level of true power. Like as a Dean of Design, I have true power and I can bring and accelerate these processes. So when I think about hiring for decolonization, diversity and inclusion, you need to make sure you have diversity at the level of power. You need to have diversity at the level of kind of like influencers in the middle. And you need to have diversity at the um, entry level because you need to see if the institution will support them in growing and developing. And so if you're a design firm, it's like 
you know, entry level might be interns, but you also need to have employees who are again at that middle level of like, you know, senior designers or beginning to move into management. And then you also need to have people who are at the executive level in order to, who have the power to say, no, we shouldn't do this if it's going to hurt um, marginalized communities. And what I'm doing today is we're showing others the possibilities of change. So I have a course that I run, which I'll be running again in November this year, um, November, December, Hiring for Decolonization, Diversity, and Inclusion in Creative Industries. It's a micro-credential. And we walk through these processes. How can human rights law um, support hiring for decolonization, diversity, and inclusion? Um, again, how do you build relationships uh, in, and set up strategies to build relationships with indigenous black and POC communities? Um, how do you make the case um, for transforming your organization through the way in which you write position descriptions, the way in which you set up the criteria of evaluation, and then defining your own personal commitment? So I know I've gone through like, you know, uh, the, the way in which design has been harmful, but again, design is a tool. It's built into the intentionality that we give it. So design can be a site of liberation. A design can be a site of decolonization. And some of the things that we've done to help that happen is put indigenous demands first, own up to institutional racism and white supremacy, establish authentic relationship to community, understand that it's about the community interest and not just your own and then take into account systemic exclusion as we define in some ways the boundaries the qualifications of how we bring people in and then try to achieve critical mass because it's by achieving critical mass that people will feel free to bring all of their nuanced identities into innovation into community connection, into expansion in ways that, again, we can't even begin to imagine because we're just at the beginning of this process of figuring out what it really means to decolonize design. Um, so thank you very much uh, for listening. Um, here's some ways to reach out to me, so via email, um, Instagram, and Twitter. And I, I hope we have a little bit of time um, for questions and answers. Dory, thank you for that. That was remarkable. <laughs> predictably, predictably remarkable. Um, we definitely do have time for uh, questions. So we'll we'll open that up. But I I have several. Okay. I mean I'm 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 sitting here as someone who is baked in privilege. Um, and it's a um, it's a it's a, uh, a a position in which, and I, I sort of said this on Tuesday, we need to uh, look to people like yourselves, uh, like yourself, and communities who have been uh, traditionally uh, disadvantaged um, and marginalised to understand the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. But it's up to us, largely, to do that work. Yeah 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 like that job's on us right and again i i say this to um you know, again my my white faculty all the time is like decolonization that's your work you set up the systems all it takes is for you it takes you to dismantle them it takes you to begin to want to make the sacrifices of of the comfort of your life right um, in order to create space for others to be able to feel fully participate in society, to fully feel like they can belong on their own terms, right? Not in terms of assimilating, but on their own terms. And for me, what's been really, again, amazing about being at OCAD now, and, and this is again shifted over just a period of, of five years, is that if I'm in a room for a meeting, I'm, I'm, I don't have to be the one who brings up the topic of like, okay, we need to decolonize this or we need to do this. Like yeah. anyone, often what happens, anyone and everyone in the room sort of says, hey, this is a problem. <laughs> um, and uh, you can't imagine, well, you don't have to, it's like 
Um, one meeting that we had where we had a, an indigenous student who was participating on a committee because we have students participate on committees a lot, right? And um, there was, you know, one topic that we were talking about, and and again, it was a thing like, you know, one of the one of the you know white associate deans was was bringing up the fact that it's like, oh, that's not fair. Like that's not, that's going to, that's going to create a barrier for people to participate, right? That's going to harm, you know, let's say indigenous community if we do that. And afterwards the student said, you know, when I afterwards, like in, at the end of the meeting, the student was like, you cannot imagine what a relief it is for me to hear that because it means that I just get to be a student. Right. I don't have to do all of this extra work of like teaching my teachers um, how to not harm me. Right. And so um, that is like one of the proudest moments that I've had, you know, being at OCAD University where we've created this environment where, again, our students feel like we I can, I can just be a student. I don't have to carry that burden of trying to protect myself from an institution who's, again, Maybe not intentionally, but the way in which the structures work, the way the content, so say, the way they value, who they value at design is actually harmful to me. Um, and so, and, and the work that students create when they're that free, I mean, like, uh, this particular student is, a, uh, is from the North, so um, Inuit, and they're a printmaker, which is, again, one of the, the great practices that come out of that area. And, you know, but she does printmaking, you know, using like French fry grease or all these other sort of things. And so I just think of the context of like how much creativity is possible, how much freedom is possible when, when, when people are not burdened by having to explain their basic humanity and the necessity of their basic humanity to the people around them. And that's where, and so, so much where we want to get to is that understanding from everyone, right? From everyone of, of just that basic respect. Like you exist, not because you're useful to me, not because I can take something from you. You exist because you're beautiful in your existence. And I'm going to understand that and embrace that and allow that to flourish in the environment. And those are all the things that colonialism collapses down. It creates the conditions in which only certain people are allowed to flourish at the expense of indigenous black and POC people for the most part, right? Yeah. Um, there are some questions uh, coming in, so I will do the Yay. right thing and ask other people's questions. Um, the, the first one really quickly. Uh, so Tom um, just asked if we could get a link to that micro-credential that you're running. Um, uh, sure. <laughs> at, at, at some point. Um, we'll we'll get that off you and, and circulate it, but let, sure. let's not forget that one. Um, okay. Sandrine uh, asked a question. I'm a white immigrant, my choice. I have adopted the Australian citizenship. What do you believe are the responsibilities from immigrants who choose to move to a country like Canada or Australia? Well, and, and you know, like technically speaking, I'm an immigrant to Canada, <laughs> mm. and and my and my again, my indigenous colleagues tell me this all the time. Like they hold me highly accountable, where they're like, learn about the land, right? So yeah. so like you know, the the land acknowledgement in some ways is like your beginning process to understand what you need to study. I need to understand the history of the Haudenosaunee. I need to understand mm. the history of the Windat peoples. I need to understand what's their relationship to the land so that I can position myself in a correct way as yeah. a guest to the land and understand what it means to be their guest to the land. And so that's the main responsibility is, um, is to learn, um, to be in true allyship, which you don't get to determine yourself. And so again, like I, 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 my, my colleagues, like they call me on anything and everything that, and that's constantly me having to, to demonstrate that I am putting indigenous demands first that I am putting to indigenous demands first. So we didn't do the black cluster hire first. We did the indigenous cluster hire first. Why? Because I have to put indigenous demands first. And so 
that's your responsibility um, as a good guest, right? Is to, yep. um, is to, again, not cause discomfort and pain to your host, right? There's a, um, an interesting uh, movement happening in Australia uh, that's been driven from our Indigenous communities, um, which is uh, known as the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Mm -hmm. um, it is a set of uh, three uh, invitations, um, and they are framed as invitations, but there are these three invitations um, um, around how we can begin that journey in a um, much more authentic um, and much more sort of meaningful way. Um, and they're like, they're to have a, a voice enshrined in the constitution and in the parliament, um, truth telling, um, this, uh, like these sorts of um, things, mm -hmm. but they, they come in an order. Um, <laughs> and what's been, what's been interesting is that um, uh, recently the debate has been around, well, actually, we're going to do number two first mm -hmm. from, you know, like a, a predominantly white parliament. It's just like, we, we, we hear what you're saying and we really do take that seriously. Um, mm -hmm. But we're not going to, uh, we're not going to do it in the order that you're asking us to do it. We're going to mm -hmm. do it in, in the order that we actually prefer to see it done, um, which is this... <laughs> crazy, crazy sort of response to something that was a real uh, genuine uh, and heartfelt invitation um, to walk together on this journey uh, mm -hmm. and then for, you know, like the uh, whiteness to come through and go, actually, we're going to do it our way. Uh, if in, and, and if you really want something from us, then it's going to have to be on our terms, which is problematic. I'd also like to say, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, to Sandrine's question about being an immigrant, um, like my, my family obviously immigrated to Australia as well. They just did it uh, longer ago. Um, the first members of my family uh, to arrive in Sydney were um, Irish militants, um, mm -hmm. so political prisoners who were deported to Australia, um, arrived in 1803, so about 15 years after the colony was first settled in Sydney. Um, it would be easy for me to argue that like that was uh, the British mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and it wasn't really you know like my family kind of thing mm -hmm. um, and that would be a nice way for me to sort of uh, distance myself from responsibility for this kind of stuff and that's just not the way it works yeah. um, and it, it, it's important and we again like in Australia we have this conversation and this debate um, all the time around who's actually responsible for colonialism in Australia and who's responsible for racism in Australia, whether or not Australia is a racist country, um, which is absurd, but that's a question. Um, <laughs> like, I can answer that question for you. <laughs> Australia is absolutely, fundamentally, systemically, <laughs> from the foundation of the colony, a racist mm. country. Um, mm. There really should be no question about that. Yeah. All right. Um, go. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, like, like again, even even for me, so so again, in that sort of triangulation place, like the the the, the context of like the enslaved category is is a different category because there's an assumption that we are innocent, right? We were brought here involuntarily, mm -hmm. and I normally and I talk about that in the sense of like, well, in the context of the United States, again, what black people were promised was forty acres and a mule. Where do you think those forty acres going to come from? Right. So our relationship right to indigeneity is really complex as well, because on sometimes we were, again, great allies and other times we were in great conflict. Again, indigenous people had black slaves. So in all of our relationships, there's all these complexities. There's always these shifting alliances. And that's that's what makes that's what makes the unpacking of it so challenging and so painful, cool. because in some ways, um, no one is completely innocent. Um, we all and we all have to figure out how to go forward together. But again, yeah. with the understanding of what what we're aiming towards is is this indigenous sovereignty. And I, I talk about what we're trying to do at OCAD is we're trying to create an environment in which everyone gets used to living under indigenous sovereignty. So we're trying to turn OCAD University into a place that is, again, um, 
organized around indigenous principles, indigenous ways of governing, indigenous educational models, all yeah. of those sort of things. So that when indigenous sovereignty comes and we believe it will come, then again, you know, just in design, I will have 2,600 students coming out who are like, indigenous already that's no problem i know how to live that i know how to be within that i know how to find my positionality in that and i know how to support that right yeah. and that's the kind of we want more of those kinds of places um and more of that transformation because you know we, we're talking about like the climate <laughs> more than crises we're like in a climate I don't, catastrophe um Again, there are communities that know the solutions, that know the way, that figured this out in some cases 65,000 years ago. And so if we, if we are serious about indigenous sovereignty, then guess what? We actually, we actually solve our problems with the climate as well. Um, I'm, I'm gonna uh, jump to uh, Rowan's question um, sure. in one moment. I, I just wanna say like the journey in Australia still has an incredibly long way to go um it is only within my lifetime that we recognize that um there were aboriginal and torres strait islander people here when the colony was settled like that mm -hmm. was only recently mm -hmm. agreed mm -hmm. um you know as a as a legal <laughs> you know that 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 legal fiction was overturned that the land was empty when we got here um we weren't taking it from anybody um all right. Rowan asks, um, do you have other institutions or organizations that you think are doing good, positive work to decolonize design? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, like right now, there's so much activity that's coming, you know, like I like say in the context of North America, there's so much activity that's coming out of like last summer's grappling with the murder of George Floyd, which again mm. is tied to sort of, um, you know, the um, indigenous uh, land and water protection. So there's some really things that are actu yeah. uh, actually, so uh, places that right now I'm really admiring. And again, most of them are academic because I'm an academic, but like Rhode Island School of Design, the number mm -hmm. three art and design institution, you know, in the world, like they are on this journey, like they are taking it serious. Like, they are giving back to indigenous communities like items in their museums <laughs> that right. were taken from indigenous they are hiring they had a black cluster hire so they're still working on the indigenous first part but they at least had a black cluster sure. hire mm -hmm. they're decolonizing their curriculum um so that's a place that it's like really really and again it's like you don't think of these you think of these things like you know okay university is okay university and we were like maybe you know we're number one in in canada but to have like the third most prestigious art and design institution m making this kind of transformation like this is major that changes it changes the standards right yeah. um and then in terms of businesses that are, are beginning to do the work, like I've like in the context of Toronto, I'm really close to like the advertising industries. And so just the conversations that they've been having and the shifting of their practices, I've just been really deeply, deeply, deeply impressed. And so like um, uh, one of the companies that I'm again is Sid Lee, which if you knew the uh, Raptors <laughs> and the We in the North campaign, so they are the mm -hmm. they are the organization that did the We in the North <clears throat> campaign. So the okay. work that they're doing to um, hire uh, diverse uh, members of the community, the support that they're doing in terms of providing you know pro bono work to black indigenous and POC communities. And again, using that incredible power that they have to tell stories, to tell different stories, to tell new stories. Like that's an organization that I'm just like trying to send my students to come work for because there's going to be no, there's going to be no gap between the values we're teaching at OCAD and the values that they're going to be practicing at, if they go into, let's say for example, Sidley, right? Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm not aware personally of um, institutions like OCAD in Australia that are heading down similar paths. Are you are, are you familiar with any? We try to do it at Swinburne. <laughs> I mean, that's the yeah. thing where you know, like that 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 um, you know, like my journey in particular started at Swinburne. So what I was able to do is to take the stuff that we like. I got the job at OCAD because. 
I was able to say, we have done this at Swinburne. You want to know how indigenous knowledge fits into the curriculum? We had a whole entire program, right? Like that's indigenous ways of learning. That's based on principles of, you know, respect, no care and share. We know what that looks like. Like we had indigenous faculty who were teaching design in the fundamental design course. Um, so, so again, I think Australia, like, you know, like all of the elements are there and it's, it's been there and it's just trying to find in some ways like a sustaining structure. You know, Deacon had done a lot of work within this, um, you know, uh, University of Queensland had done a lot of work um, within this. So, so, you know, like the work that I build on at OCAD University is the work that had already been done in the Australian context. And so it's just trying to find a way to sustain it so that it's not based on an individual. Like, so if an individual goes away, it doesn't go away. Is that it's built into every unique um, structure um, of every institution. And again, yeah. you know, like Australia has the policies, it has the language, it has the community to be able to really do that and accelerate it in a, in a really quick way. Like, you can, there's lots of, um, there's lots of uh, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who've been, again, you know, trained in design and are doing amazing work within it and, and bringing it together with their indigenous ways of knowing. It's just, how does that get substantiated in institutions? And again, I always, the institution I most admire in the Canadian context, um, I mean, in the Australian context is like the Koori Heritage Trust. Right. Like that's for me when I always thought of like, what is the model of what an institution should look like? That's really driven by indigenous sovereignty is like the Koori Heritage Trust was for me always that model. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it, it reminds me the uh, government architect office in New South Wales. So the office of the government architect uh, for the state of New South Wales um, last year last year instituted a, um, a designing with country component mm -hmm. to all uh, government projects that are now undertaken in New South Wales. So when you look around and see sort of major infrastructure projects that might be going on, um, there will be a component within that team that is looking mm -hmm. deliberately mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. relationship between people and the land um, mm -hmm. and then the way in which that piece of infrastructure can be designed to sit within the landscape in a way that is more more aligned, um, bearing mm -hmm. in mind like everything that we're talking about is a freeway extension or a railway system or something which tends to have like quite a, a, a heavy impact on on the land. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the way in which they're they're doing it is at least more sensitive to the history um, and the materiality of that particular place. Um, which is which is good to see, and they would they would acknowledge themselves. It's very early days. They mm -hmm. know that it's 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 not a complete um, project. That it's the beginning of an ongoing project, mm -hmm. in which the way in which we modernise um, and the way in which progress occurs um, is much more sensitive, at least to that mm -hmm. element of it, which is mm -hmm. which is something to see. <laughs> it's 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 at least something. Um, Okay, uh, a question, uh, I'm going to take you back to um, the United States. So okay. a number of 2020 Democratic candidates have signaled their support for a House bill that would create a congressional panel to study the possibility of reparations for descendants of slaves. They include Senators Sanders, Harris and Klobuchar. Any insights on that and any thoughts from you about the relationship of politics and design? <laughs> well, I mean, I did a lot of you've work got, with Design for no Democracy. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my thing is, is that, um, so, so I guess, do I believe in reparations? Yes, I believe in reparations. Uh, you know, if we can spend trillions and trillions of dollars over 20 years uh, to not rebuild a nation, um, you know, like the, the cost, the cost of reparations, which again, will, 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 could possibly like, again, there's a gap between the earning incomes of sort of, you know, white Americans and black Americans. So if reparations were able to, to close that gap, 
right? Then, then all of like, again, that would be the objective to close that gap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, again, I would say, I, I feel like we're, we're a couple, we, we're just having difficulty to getting voting rights bills passed again. Yeah, it passed the house uh, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. It's, the house is not a problem, just, it's the Senate. The house, <laughs> the, house is, the house is not actually the problem, but still, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and so I, I, I feel like we're a couple of generations before we're really ready to, to have that, to have that sense of reckoning. I, um, first, I just, yeah, I just think we're, we're, um, we're a couple generations away from that. Um, but again, in terms of the relationship between politics and design, design is politics and politics is design in the sense that our understanding of every aspect of, let's say, being a democracy is by design. Um, you know, God bless the Australian ballot. <laughs> Um, in terms of actually creating conditions of democracy, because it used to be you had these color ballots, um, you had these polls in terms of having to be able to read. Uh, if your ballot was the wrong color and someone saw it um, outside your pocket, they would come and beat you up because you were going to vote for the wrong candidate. So mm -hmm. democracy by design was the creation of the Australian ballot, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that is direct politics and that's direct design in working with one another. Our experience of um, of community is how we design our civic squares, right? Um, so there isn't any aspect of politics that has not been designed. It may have been designed poorly. It may have been designed for harm, as I've been sort of explaining in the history of it. But it has all been by design, and that's that's our that's our obligation in some ways as designers. Like no one else knows better. Uh, how to make manifest possibilities of values, right? So if we want respect yep. to drive everything, we are the group who knows how to build that affordance into the things that we design, into the things that we create. And so, um, so the more politically savvy that we are, like the more politically engaged, the more we determine our values are about respect and democracy and transparency and all these other things, the more we can build those affordances into everything that people interact with in every aspect of their lives. And that's, that's how we make tangible and real the change, which then helps people believe that change is possible, right? And that's, that's the part that brings hope. That's the part that gets them to vote differently or, um, or more inclusively, right? I think it's, it's um, to pick up uh, on one of your points there this idea that you know the the social systems that we're talking about are operating exactly in the way that they are intended and, and the way that they were designed so if we look at wealth inequality that is a very <laughs> clear and obvious outcome of our inheritance laws our taxation laws um the way our markets work you know like a, and a whole range of quite uh, explicit decisions that have been set up such that a relatively small number of people can accumulate a limitless mm -hmm. amount of wealth um, mm -hmm. and that that wealth largely comes from um, a, a disadvantaged and increasingly disadvantaged segment of the population which gets bigger and bigger um, mm -hmm. that's a that's a, a, a choice like and that's right. a series of choices similarly um, you know voting rights in the US is a series of explicit choices both at a federal level with things like the Voting Rights Act the John mm -hmm. Lewis bill um, but also down to state by state, county by county, the county by county, that goes on, you know, <laughs> yeah. all of those sorts of things. Also, the way, like the way primaries work in in um, the US, the way our pre-selection battles work um, uh, domestically. I, I make the point, uh, like again and again, that our prime minister was selected as a candidate on the basis of eighty-two votes from their local branch. He won that vote, which put him into a safe election for a federal seat, which got him into parliament and ultimately gets him to, to where he is. But the number of people who put him in that position was a relative handful. Um, so and that is not democracy. Actually, well, <laughs> it's exactly the way the system was designed, yes, yeah, is, is yeah, the point, yeah. right? Like, an, um, we can make some really uh, small, explicit choices to start turning that thing around. I think that's a challenge to recognize what those choices need mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. start to impact those sort of broader systems in those little ways. 
Um, be it democracy, be it our taxation system, um, we've really got some... This is why I'm optimistic about the role that design can play, yeah, um, yeah. is that we understand how to manifest those things. We understand ways in which to create a narrative, tell stories, bring people along, bring people together, um, not to do it all, but to play a, a, a critical role in moving things yeah. along. Agree, agree. Dory, that's been wonderful. Thank you so, so very much. <laughs> Okay, um, but can I can I answer just quickly about Dean Drag yes, on my Instagram because yes, I just yes, think that's such yes, a fun question. <laughs> yes, go for it. Um, just quickly, uh, Dean Drag. So no one knows what it means to be the first black and black female dean of a faculty design anywhere in the world. So Dean Drag is about um, well, first of all, I love design, right? Um, so it's a way to promote designers, which I do actively. But it's also give people a glimpse of, of authentic leadership, right? So everyone sort of says, oh, you're a dean, you're not supposed to dance, or, or you're a dean, you're not supposed to do that. Well, it's like, well, who says that? That's what it meant to be in this position of power and leadership. And so, so Dean Drag is me communicating mostly to my students, but anyone else who chooses to follow around what does it mean to be in a position of authentic leadership, to be who you are, truly who you are, um, to, to know what happens on a daily basis, the kind of decisions, the kind of meetings, the community I'm engaged with, so that you can think about the possibility of you doing it too. So if I can do it and, you know, can wear my hair the way I want to or dress the way I want to, um, then you can do it as well authentically um, and, and, and to know what it means to be like to be in that room of power and position. So, because if you can't, we, we talk about you can't be it if you can't see it. So it's making yep. it's making that role visible in a way that people can imagine themselves doing it. That's wonderful. That's mm -hmm. a, a great note to finish on. Thank you mm -hmm. so much, Dory. Thank you, Steve. And, and thank you all for inviting again. I, I can't wait till we be able to come down. I really miss I really miss Australia. Yes. yes. It'll happen. It'll happen next year. It will happen. Next year. It will next indeed. year. Thanks All very right. much, Dory. Bye.